BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, Dickie. It's Chucky Dickie. Oh, you dear boy, yes. Oh, Dickie, I can't come over tonight. Oh, no, it's nothing like this. No one else, of course, Dickie. Oh, stop it, Dickie. No, Dickie, I'm going to listen to the Cheat Shepherd Show. Well, Dickie, it's pure camp. Yes, it's the real thing, Dickie. It's camp all the way. And the real thing, Dickie, when you see he's so serious about things. Oh, it's, you just can't believe it in this day and age. <laughs> uh, oh, Bridget is back from the vets, and she's lovely. Oh, the little dear, yes. <laughs> well, all right, Dickie, he's going to be on the radio. It's just it's old-fashioned radio, you know, that old thing. It's one That's camp itself, you know. Yes. Well, all right. I'll call you after the show, Dickie. Kissy, kissy. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> the discussion on the old Shepherd list has come around to uh, Shep's politics once again, which he uh, didn't talk much about on the air. You can sort of uh, suss out a little bit of uh, where he was coming from. Uh, but on this program from February 18th, 1966, uh, I think we'll get an idea uh, of his uh, his views, it's called true believerdom. So uh, let's give a listen now to Gene Shepard. A little bit of uh, the, the tape that this came off of was rather warped. Uh, so at the beginning, it's a little bit oh, you know, in and out. The sound quality is a little mushy at the top. It improves as it goes along. So uh, don't worry, things will be better. <laughs> and here's Shepard. This is WBAI New York. Are you one of the downtrodden, sensitive ones? Oh, gee. Oh, I know how rotten it is. I know how it is living in an un- uncomprehending, non-understanding world. It's not easy. I'll tell you it ain't easy. I don't have to tell you, of course. They just don't understand. This program is dedicated to stamping out they. Bring it up there. Rotten people. What can you expect from a decadent society? Certainly not 
family is not simple, being pure in heart and basically idealistic in a society that's rotten. Ain't it good not to be part of society? It's It's just crummy. Beautiful doll, you creating razzmatazz. myself that it's right. But other parents do it and get results, so maybe I'm wrong, Abby. What do you think, Abby? Our son needs some sort of motivation, Abby, to do better in school. Richard has as much intelligence as any of his classmates who make the honor roll. Yet he barely gets by and it doesn't seem to bother him. All the while we worry, sweat and strain. And all the while we work and give him everything. We have given him everything, Abby. We've worked our fingers to the bone for our little Richard. He's coming home with C minus every semester, Abby. Oh, it's not an easy life. My husband thinks we should offer him money as an incentive. Richard Abbey is only 14, and he's saving for a Mustang. Do you think $50 for every A he gets and $25 for every B is too much? Signed, a worried mother. Tonight's commentary, brought to you courtesy of the Public Affairs Department of this far-seeing station. And uh, while we're on the subject of uh, far-seeing public affairs...
<laughs> you know, uh, somehow I could see little Richard out there. Little Richard's got the world by the you-know-what hairs. And uh, little Richard is uh, is proceeding to squeeze every last possible drop out of it that he can. <laughs> I'm just one thing I want to ask here. Just just you know, you're sitting on that scratch, and just just a hypothetical question here. Can you see little Richard at the age of 28, sitting behind his desk, controlling the destiny of others? Can you? Uh, you know, uh, little Richard. Little uh, this this uh, this brings up uh, all kinds of problems. Of course, I, I suspect today that the that the problem of uh, what we call what we call euphemistically in our time alienation. Uh, that's the feeling that guys have that they're not part of society, and uh, society, of course, is basically crummy and rotten. And uh, it's that thing out there. It's that monolith out there. It's uh, it's usually represented by mother and father. Uh, society is daddy and mommy. And uh, have you noticed that almost everybody who talks about society... In fact, the other day I, I saw an interview with a folk singer. And uh, he was saying, he says, well... And uh, it was a pretty interesting interview. He says, well, he says, you know... He says, the trouble with the adult world is they're setting our ways... That's the trouble with the adult world. And their ways are rotten. Look what that lead them to us. They'll let us a war. They'll let us all this jazz. This guy's 38. Who said that? So the implication being that anybody who's mad at what's going on is, if so facto, not an adult. He's part of that great world of forever kidly. And uh, he, he, they refer euphemistically to the adult world as if it's that other world. What he's really talking about is his mother and father, no matter what he is, what, no matter what the age he is. And uh, I, I spent some time with the world's, probably the world's most famous uh, symbols of today's youth. And uh, the curious thing about them, when you're with them, I'm speaking, of course, of the Beatles, is that they are, they're, they're not, they have nothing whatsoever. They themselves are about as much teenage as, let's say, Wallace Beery was. Uh, <laughs> in any one of their, <laughs> and yet, they've got this interesting split, this psychological split where they, where they can consider themselves teenagers when it is pertinent to do so. In other words, uh, it's, it's as though you can turn off your kid world off and on. You can be a teenager when it pays off. Uh, you can be a teenager as long as you're sore at what's going on in the world. Somehow the idea that teenagers, or or you might say the youth, that's a euphemistical word too, that the youth uh, can get away with murder, you know, that, that they're not part of society. is uh, yeah, I, and, and it's very handy. It's a very, very, very uh, nice way to, to, to feel. I remember, you know, speaking of grades, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I imagine most of us have had a, a traumatic uh, feeling at one time or another that we're not part of it, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that, that somebody, is not, uh, somebody is not letting us in, that they're keeping us out, uh, that uh, we're, not, we're not being allowed uh, to, to sip the wonderful elixir of heaven and, and honey and all the rest of it that is part of the big grown-up world. And once you have sipped it, you find out that it's flat Pepsi-Cola. And so then you quickly withdraw from it and say, well, they screwed it up. They loused it up. <laughs> you know, they really, they really... Uh... 
And so you prefer forever to ride your Elgin bicycle through existence, hollering, yeah, you grown-ups! And somebody says, Charlie, you know, it looks a little funny for a 74-year-old guy to be wearing knickers like that. What do you mean, 74? Hey! And it goes on and on. But uh, the, the, the feeling of alienation that, that the people have and, and uh, the curious, uh, the curious uh, byproducts of that alienation, it takes many forms. Uh, <laughs> the, the curious byproduct of alienation are some of the little products you see around that are being sold to people to assure them that, uh, that they are part of the world and that not only that, uh, they can create their own world. Uh, and it, it follows. I, I wonder. I wonder how many people get true love out of uh, Fellini movies. I'm just curious about that. How many people? <laughs> how many people confuse 35 millimeter film with life today? I, I'm sure that there are many. Uh, and and uh, I, I just I'm curious how many. Of course, you know it. It, it varies from age to age too. Uh, there was a time when man confused the Gothic cathedral with existence. And he would stand around and scratch in the streets of Cologne. And on all sides of him, of course, uh, uh, the bubonic plague is raging. On all sides, uh, the 4,000-year war is going on. Uh, the War of the Pipkins or the War of the Roses or whatever war was going on at the time. Uh, and and he, could, he could look up at that fantastic edifice of stained glass that that incredible thing made out of stone and and iron and it reached four million miles into the sky and he would walk in through the through the doorway of this thing this gigantic entranceway and he felt this was real life all that stuff out there is unreal that's that's ridiculous crap that's silly stuff and uh, and so he he got his surcease that way now, things change, of course. Uh, the the uh, individual escape changes as, as we go through life. as That is, as mankind goes through life. And then there was a period when he began to feel that the salon... Now, I'm always talking, of course, in this case, of the intellectuals. He began to feel that the salon... Because the guy who's out there getting bubonic plague rarely has any confusion. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he really has any confusion about how you can escape life and what it's going to be like. He's got it, and that's the end of it. And he dies, and he becomes fertilizer, and that's the way the world goes. Now, no, that's, there's always the great underbody of the fodder. Uh, they're the ones upon whom the theories are tried out. Uh, no, there's no question about it. They're called the lumpen proletariat. It, that doesn't make any difference. If it's, if it's communism, well, you should know what Stalin did to the Kulaks. If you know anything about your communist history, they all of a sudden found when, when the great theory came in in the 1920s, uh, that is when the great revolution occurred in the 20s, there they were stuck with about 10 and a half million people who just wanted to grow radishes. You know, they kept digging holes in the ground and planting seeds and making radishes come up or not come up, depending on whether the locusts came or not, you know. And uh, so when they came around and said, you go now live in Big Farm, you make, uh, with millions of people, sing folk song. Uh, you know, we want, we want to make, uh, grow radish. Well, ultimately, they had to herd them all in one great big pile and turn the flamethrower on to make the, yeah, they killed like ten and a half million of them just to make it work. Well, <laughs> no.
Now, anybody who's involved in the theory never considers himself one of that great big pile of people are going to turn the flamethrower on. He always considers himself part of the group that's going to make it work. He's got to be one of them, you know, using the euphemistic them. So, so ultimately, uh, the, 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 the retreat into unreality takes many forms. A great, great series of things uh, that, that uh, in a way, represent the ideal representation. At one point, it's the, it's the giant Gothic cathedral. And they were the intellectuals of the time that, that were involved in this. Uh, the people working over their parchment scrolls, building these fantastic edifices. And all the rest of them out there had the plague. And uh, <laughs> they'd walk past, and all they were expected to do was to get out there with the mortar. They were expected to get out there with the trowels and build the edifice. That's all. And, uh, and so for a hundred years, a guy would be hanging on the side of the building there, putting gargoyles in place. <laughs> <laughs> While down below is a guy in a in a long in a long smock telling him how to do it and and directing it all towards that particular cloud wherein lay the truth, and so as each as each succeeding <laughs> as each succeeding epoch goes by, there has to be there has to be another fantastic, great, incredible idealistic dream, and now now we're slowly moving into. We are slowly moving into the uh, another dream. It's a, there's the technical dream on one side. There's the ideal, idealistic, humanistic dream on the other. And so the people, the people who are involved in the creation of many one of these fantastic edifices, they never want to hear about that plague. <laughs> you know, that's something that we're going to get once we get it built. They always say once it's done, then the plague will be over. Then then we'll take care of that. Uh, just like in in uh, in the twenties when they were having this big revolution in Russia, they kept saying, "Well, once once it is uh, once our state is uh, is uh, accepted, once it is created, then we will stop uh, squirting the flamethrowers on the kulaks." Well, uh, it ain't easy still today being a kulak in certain areas. <laughs> uh, speaking of. Uh, Speaking of Kulaks, this is WOR AM and FM New York. Hit the button in there, man. Miller High like the bright, clear tasting beer. Miller High like the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. And we're cracking one open right here at WBAI New York 99.5 on the FM recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. My name doesn't matter. Let's just say I'm a highly paid executive of the Ludens Company. I must report to you that our campaign to discourage people from chewing Ludens cough drops is a partial failure. We have tried every way we know to get you chewers to dissolve Luden's cough drops slowly so the medication can trickle down slowly to give you temporary relief from coughs due to colds and minor sore throat. 
What can we do to make you understand? Should we engineer Luden's cough drops so that they make embarrassing sounds when you chew one like this? Should we publish the names of known chewers? Those of you out there who chew Luden's cough drops, please write us your suggestions. <laughs> Address your letter to me, Mr. X, the Luden's Never Chew Society, Luden's, Reading, Pennsylvania. Mm. I'm sorry, I think that's one of the funniest commercials I've ever heard. Luden's cough drops. I never knew that the cough job world was getting hip, you know? <laughs> Let's see, speaking of the hip world, we've got Rover with us. And for a long time, people who've known something about automobiles have known about this car. It's uh, a fine English automobile, and uh, it's getting around the town where there's going to be a lot of people who are going to invest in another heap. And I would suggest that before you do anything rash, uh, to find out what all this talk about Rover is about. It truly is one of the world's most beautifully designed automobiles and has, according to a, a current... Automotive magazine has a startlingly sports car-like feel. This is a big car, you know. There's a four very large, very comfortable seats, and she moves. This is the Rover 2000, and if you'd like pictures of it, we'll send them along. Just send your name and address to Rover here at WOR, and we'll take care of it. The, the world has been taken over by the true believers. Now, I'm talking about true believers. You know, so many guys who believe in, in who, 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 when they think, of, when they, when you use the word true believer, often guys think it, it relates only to classical religions. Uh, they, they, they'll say, well, what do you mean? I'm not a true believer. And, and five minutes later, you'll hear them spouting some gigantic, uh, uproar of dogma that just doesn't stop. You know, it's all part, of, <laughs> and, and he's got, he's got, he doesn't believe in religion, but he believes in this. And he will whip out a book. I don't care what the book is. The book could be Maoist Theory. The book could be a Communist Manifesto. Uh, the book could be uh, How to Live Under a Democracy by Thomas Jefferson. And whatever, whatever the particular credo is, he will claim that he's not a true believer. But now here is something he wants to show you. And, <laughs> oh, wow. And so the world, the world really, I think, I think the ultimate, the ultimate battle in the world is not going to be between ideologies, uh, or ideologies, if you prefer that pronunciation. I think the ultimate battle is going to be between the non-believers and the true believers. And then there's going to be a third group. Uh, you could, uh, you could almost call them the, uh, mm? that group. <laughs> You know, they're not, because being a non-believer is a genuine positive stance. He merely says, hey, that's for canal water. Well, uh, what about, what about the Kulak? Now, is he a non-believer or is he a believer? Or is he just a walker arounder? Is he the one upon whom the bloom inevitably descends from both sides? Do they, do the non-believers holler at him? Get behind us! We want to blow up! We want to blow up the cathedral! Get behind us! We want to burn down a White House! Get behind us! We want to blow up the Kremlin! Yeah, he's, I let him have the little toys, you know? I'm not going to get mad at a guy that's got a little Kremlin there. Let him, he's, he's a little thing wind it up and it makes squeaks, you know? So what, you know? I don't care if they got that thing down there. They want to pass laws and holler and make speeches on TV. Let them, that's up to them. I'm, you know... I want to walk around and plant radishes and scratch and do these little things once in a while. And then the non-believer will holler, 
the non-believer will holler at him, You are not involved! You do not understand the fantastic issues that are at stake! Well, on the other hand, the guy who's operating this fantastic machine, whatever the machine is at the, any given time, uh, he will he will holler at the non-believer. Uh, he will holler at the non-believer, All right, we accept your challenge! And then he turns immediately to the great crowd of the scratchers and the walkers around, and he says, Rally behind our cause! Let us defend this fantastic thing, which we know has brought beauty and truth and everything to all of us. Let us get behind and drive out the rotten guys. He says, hey, you know, let them have their little parade, you know. <laughs> so guess who gets it from both sides ultimately? He proves to be the real enemy of both sides. He is genuinely the enemy of both camps. Now, what a camp really is, is a group of people who want to, and this is in my opinion, and it's also in the opinion of many historians, a camp is a group of people who wants to, who wants to replace one set of values with another. Theirs. Now, they, they always like to believe, they always like to pretend that it's clearing up the mess. It's cleaning up injustice and rottenness. No, boy, on and on and on, whatever it might be. But it really ultimately proves to be replacing one crowd with another. Replacing one set of injustices with another set of injustices. You know, uh, replacing one set of tyrannies with another set of tyrannies. Now, it is never a tyranny to the guy who's doing tyranny. As long as you're in and you're turning the screws, then you don't consider it tyranny. You consider it a, a rightful correction of basic uh, injustices in an old decadent society, whatever it is that you're. <laughs> so you know, it's it's uh, it, wherever you go, you you you'll never find that the guy who's sitting behind the desk, uh, no matter what the system is, whether it's uh, purportedly democracy, whether it's purportedly uh, communism, whether it's purportedly socialism, whatever the ism or theocracy or whatever it is you call it. Rarely do you ever find a guy sitting behind a desk who is in charge in one way or another, or at least is realizing or accepting the benefits of the system that's in. Rarely does he recognize any actions by the group that is producing for him these benefits. Rarely does he recognize in them anything other than beneficences. He rarely says, well, of course, you know, a little tyranny here, a little injustice there, it makes the pot boil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Never is it not only that, it makes the shekels flow and it keeps things moving. It makes the system work. Of course, plenty of kulaks got to go down the drain, you know. Keep us in here. They keep yelling and hollering. Well, where do they go then, huh? What are they? What, oh, you have to. You have to always point out that whatever you're doing, whatever particular injustice you're embarked on, and I'm using that word advisedly here, whatever particular injustice you're embarked on, you're, you're involved with. You have to you have to refer to that as a justifiable battle against enemies of the state. So uh, then, of course, it's justified that that no matter no matter what pops up there. You know, this is the the old technique that Hitler used. Any time a guy popped up as trap, and there were many of them in, in Germany in the 30s who were not Jewish, who were not uh, uh, were not anything but just people uh, living in Germany who did not like what was going on. The minute they opened their trap. 
the boom came down on them as being enemies of the state. That's all. They were just called enemies of the state. That whatever the state did was right. And uh, we all know that the state is for the good of everybody. Right, gang? And that's what we bought it in for. Right, gang? That's what it's here for. Right? Smart guy? All right. All right. Enemy? Down the, down the chute he goes. Into the coal bin. And uh, this, this is happening everywhere you go. You try being an enemy of the state in Beiping. Uh, you try opening your trap once. And, uh, of course, I know this is a very unpleasant thing to say. You try opening your trap in a lot of areas in this country. <laughs> you know, it's a fact. Uh, you'll get a thing on the back of the neck. Uh, it's just the way it works. And that is, and people like to think that this is curable. Now, here's where we come to the nub, the crux. Uh, old Shakespeare's rub. Uh, the, the great, uh, the, the great, and I, I suppose, uh, long-standing myth is that this condition is curable. That one day some fantastic millennia is going to arrive that is going to be the truth. <laughs> and, and, and everybody's going to agree to it. That's just going to be a question about it. And from that day on, we're going to sing songs in the wheat fields, play guitars, and tramp grapes. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the, uh, if you go back 18 million years, you will see that the littoral is littered with busted up tablets, stone, clay, bronze, or otherwise. And, uh, these, these, <laughs> and each one represented a new and cataclysmic and apocalyptic truth that came upon the scene. And 18 million people cheered. 47,000 guys were suddenly elevated to the top rung in the palace, and 26 trillion kulaks died. <laughs> it had to go. And then eventually, one kulak, every time it always works, one kulak stops being a kulak, you see. And the minute he stops being a kulak, he goes back after the kulaks again. This is the ironical part of it. It's always, it's again going back to daddy and mommy. Little Richard winding up throwing a throwing a hand grenade into daddy's, into daddy's study as he's sitting there trying to figure out how to pay the bills for little Richard's school. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. I, I uh, hate to report to you that uh, we have just received seven successive phone calls. The first one accusing me of being a right-wing nut. The second one accusing me of being a left-wing radical. And uh, the third one accusing me of being a middle-ground maniac. <laughs> And the fourth accusing me of being a nutty Kulak. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing you've got to remember about today's world, too, if you, if you want to get along in it, is uh, to quote George Aid, one of the great creators of American humor, keep a straight face, if possible. In other words, no one will believe that you're seriously involved in life at all or you give a damn at all. If you find anything funny at all in life, not a bit of it. Uh, a friend of mine, for example, the other day, who's a, who's a top folk singer, uh, had a giant fist fight with another top folk singer. And uh, the problem related to uh, a basic one of integrity and reality. It seems that the first folk singer, who's an old friend of mine, had lived in abject uh, poverty for most of his life. And that he really had. He really had a, had a devil of a time early in his career and his life. And the second folk singer has made a fantastic career out of singing about poverty. 
And, uh... <laughs> he knew his property by way of coming up to Swarthmore University. Where, you know, a guy has a hard time grubbing a third helping of, of rice pudding out of that hard, rocky soil at a cafeteria. And, and uh, of course, he had a rough time grubbing a third and fourth helping of allowance out of Daddy on the way up. And so he's made a fantastic, hip thing of being a leader of the great underground movement to alleviate uh, suffering on the part of poor, poor, misunderstood, uh, poor, trampled underfoot mankind. Well, he walked into this guy's pad, my my friend the folk singer, and here is the other folk singer sitting there surrounded by his acolytes. And he is drinking out of a champagne glass. He's got the champagne, which he carries with him constantly. He's a champagne glass type. <laughs> you guys should know. I'm serious. You you know, I, 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 I feel so sorry for so many people who are the great followers of people. They should know a little bit about the reality of some of the people they're following. It would, it would be, it would make, really, it makes Catch-22 by Joseph Heller look like greasy kid stuff. Now, I'm saying the real-life existence of many of the reformer types make the people that they are about to unseat make their lives seriously look roughly like the life of Martin Luther. <laughs> and so here is this dilettante. I mean, he's a genuine dilettante. And he's carrying around his little champagne glass. And he's got his little white, fluffy, angry sweater on that's torn open at the seams, you know. And it says, uh, it says Pomona Motorcycle Club on it. And he's sitting there looking angrily out from under his shock of hair. Incidentally, he reminds me very much of my cousin Joyce. Uh, he looks very much like Joyce. And, um, well, Joyce is a girl. In case you're interested. Uh, <laughs> they haven't discovered yet what this guy is. And so, anyway, he's, he's sitting there and, and, and he's very angrily telling his friends that he's just written another fantastic expose of how rotten poverty is. And he's got a bullwhip in his right hand. And as he strums his guitar with his other hand, he keeps going, pow, with the bullwhip and sipping out of the champagne. Well, my friend comes in there and he takes one look at this unbelievably decadent scene and within 30 seconds there's a fist fight. And, and they're hollering about who knows about poverty. <laughs> what right do you have to talk about this jazz? Well, uh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, uh, inverse, wild, peculiar, I, I suppose you might say almost totally surreal view of the world once you get to see both sides. You know, a lot of people are going to write and say, what do you, what, what's this, what, what relevance does this have to the beautiful songs he sings? It has a great deal of relevance. In fact, it has all relevance, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it, uh, it presents us with some curious paradoxes, or is that paradi? Paradiques. Or paradikes. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, or does it, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to be very careful on that. Work with this pronunciation of words, but here, you, here you've got the the, the 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 situation beautifully outlined. These two guys have a giant fistfight, and they're both purportedly for the same thing. Yet here is the interesting difference: that the guy who really knows about poverty, who really knows and has lived in in that world of difficulties, finds it hard to beat his chest about it and be angry about it. He is vaguely amused about it. And, and saddened about it, but he, he just, because he has known it, he also knows that it is not what those who do not know it 
think it is. <laughs> and so, so, uh, uh, so you have the, the, the curious problem of the man who has known this world, this world of, of uh, genuine iniquity, the world of genuine injustice. Uh, he is considered to be a Johnny-come-lately. He is considered a phony in the world I'm singing about, whereas the other guy is considered the real thing, and he hasn't known a day of it. And as a matter of fact, would be the last guy to even sully his feet going into the areas that he sings about and the life that he sings about. And so you have that curious problem that, in, in a sense that the dilettante will almost always win out because the dilettante is not hampered by overtones of reality. Uh, he is not, he is not hampered by, uh, by these, these, uh, these, these hanging on little pieces of knowledge which prevent you from being didactic. Uh, that's what you have to be if people, if, you know, people gotta go to, gonna follow. You have to be didactic. You have to, you have to be absolutely without any question. If the easiest way to be totally, completely, thoroughly, and without any question, irrevocably, completely against all wars, is to not know one dollop of history. Is to not know anything about the reality of man and the constant emergence of various genuine world threats that occur. The Hitlers keep popping up in the world, you know. Uh, it's, it's okay as long as you don't know about those things or can pretend that those things, if they did exist, were highly exaggerated and are now mythical. That's okay, and, you know. So, so ultimately, ultimately, it, it, it's uh, it, it's easy to know. It's, it's best, really, to have little knowledge. It's really best. Now, you can you can, uh, in carrying it even further, there can be knowledge, but that's not the same as wisdom. Uh, it's all right to have book knowledge about about things like poverty, book knowledge of things. Uh, so you can even uh, even at the point where you have this the second hand, third hand, fourth hand, uh, this this uh, abstract knowledge of things, you can still maintain a kind of a didactic quality. Uh, it's uh, have you ever have you ever wondered uh, reading novels, for example, it's fascinating to read novels dealing with things that we all know, and I suspect that the guy that writes the most apocalyptic love scenes is the guy that has not had much of it. He's... <laughs> yeah. And, and so he, it's, it's all in his mind, you know. He, he creates this, this wild fantasy, this wild, incredible scene. And so ultimately, when he tries the real thing, he finds it doesn't work. It isn't that way. And so he says, well, I haven't found the right one. And he consistently looks and constantly searches and then finally winds up by just writing about it. He becomes Henry Miller. Uh, he becomes Henry Miller where it's all up in the noodle. And uh, it just, just pours out, pours out, pours out until ultimately the door opens and he's in there writing away furiously and this fantastic chick looks in on him and she says, uh, Charlie, how about it? And he says, get, can't you see I'm busy? Get off my fat. Oh, gee. And he sits down there and her great eyes, the fantastic lust that poured out. <laughs> don't trouble me with reality. Give me a little blues in there, will you, man? Speaking of reality, no, before you do that, before you do that, uh, how, how, do you, how do you feel this one, speaking of the vicarious existence? Have you seen this ad recently? Oh, that's very good. That's... Yeah, cha-cha-cha. 
Hi, Kulak. How are you, Dad? China, or is it Kulak? Kulak. China. China. Yes, ma'am. You can have instant fun with these shapely, life-size, inflatable legs. Realize love's sweet dream at your beck and call. Yeah, These unique, instant fun, long-legged American beauties, life-size, of easily inflatable, heavy-duty vinyl in lifelike flesh color. And so, once again, we here bring you another jot, another mode of love's sweet dream. In the swirling, fantastic, swinging, dynamic, Agogo 60s. We are proud to note once again that man's basically romantic nature still remains. His desire for his fellow creature remains untrammeled and intact. It's just a start, but it's a start, fellas, towards the brave new world. Next year, <laughs> the whole girl makes a wonderful gift for the man on your list who has almost everything. Would you please uh, give me give me a little blues there? Just prepare the blues there for a minute. You know, ever since uh, ever since I uh, discovered years ago when I'm a kid, and I'm sitting in a I'm sitting in a study hall, and somebody passed along a little thin paper bound copy of uh, a collection of Don Marquis's stuff, uh, and I started to laugh right out loud in the study hall. Listen to this one. Here's a little story that Archie left in the typewriter called the Flathead Lightning Bug. Boss, a lightning bug got in here the other night. A regular hick, boss, from the real country he was. <laughs> Awful proud of himself. You city insects may think you are some pumpkins, but I don't see any of you flashing in the dark like we do in a country. All right, go to it, says I. Mahitable a cat and that green spider who lives in your locker and two or three cockroach friends of mine and a friendly rat all gathered around him and urged him on. And boss, he lighted. He lighted and he lighted and lighted. You don't see anything like this in town often, he says. Go to it, we told him. It's a real treat to us. And we nicknamed him boss Broadway, which pleased him. This is the life, he said. All I need is a harbor under me to be a Statue of Liberty. 
And, boss, he got so vain of himself, I had to take him down a peg. You've made lightning for two hours, little bug, I told him. But I don't hear any claps of thunder. And yet, there are some men like that. When he wore himself out, Mahitable the cat ate him. Signed, Archie. Boss, I don't know what's going to happen around here. <laughs> Boss? It's the difficulties of art. All right. What's here? Boss? You know, I've been thinking, Boss. It's really funny, Boss. You know, I have discovered, Boss, by this time, that literature makes strange bedfellows. Boss, there is now a caterpillar who lives behind the overshoes, back where you throw your lunch bags, who's going to write a play. I don't know, boss. I don't know whether I like this literature stuff after all. It's a lot of phonies in it, boss. Signed, Archie. <laughs> Rasmus Tonight are about the way it plays. Da, 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 about life among the ladybugs. Very good, very good. Uh, life is rich. Life is is like some big thick gumbo soup. Yes, indeed. You gotta learn to drink deeply of the Imperium, or is it the Imperian Spring? It matters not. Make sure that you clear your throat first. Make sure that you get the strainer out because you're liable to pick up a few galumphers along the line there. And uh, by all means, friends, keep your knees loose. And uh, keep your glove oil, too. Don't ever let that old feeler's mitt get hard and dry because they may swat a couple of line drives out the right field yet. All right, George. And you better be ready for them. So get out the needs for the oil. Keep things moving. And uh, make sure that you're involved. And uh, pick up a cause. Buy yourself a bullwhip. Learn to play the guitar. Get yourself a good agent. And go out and uh, correct the evils of the oil. Be sure you get yourself a couple of dates on the Ed Sullivan Show along the way, and maybe a couple of shots on Johnny Carson. Okay, friends, that's it. Your friend, Archie. Ending to our Gene Shepherd show this morning. 
Originally broadcast on February 18th. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.